Look up idiot in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Do Movies Badly, a podcast exploration of my cinematic ignorance. I am your host, Jim Rohner, and despite being an amateur film critic since 2006, I am woefully ignorant of many films, filmmakers, and genres that consensus has deemed important, and thus I have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. This month, I'm exploring the films of Iranian filmmaker Abbas Kiarostami, and as recommended by Benny Crown, and in this week's episode, I'll be talking about his final film from 2012, Like Someone in Love. Um, and I'm going to actually start this episode by quoting someone else. This is... Um, the Criterion essay on likeness included with some uh, like someone in love by Nico Baumbach, and I think it's a it's kind of important to start with this to kind of um, set the tone of not just the film but also kind of my engagement and understanding and relation with it. But he says in all of Kiarostami's films, uh, these games of simulation and dissimulation, likeness and play, are carried over from the protagonist to the spectator. One of the central gestures of his work is to create a relation to the film in which the spectator's experience will mirror the character's plight, which always means opening up a gap between the world, the social world, but also the world of film, and the viewer's desires and revealing the subversive potential of appearance, of semblance, of being like. Kiarostami has suggested that this involves making the spectator the author of the film, which for him also means making the filmmaker something of a spectator. And I love that because it does it, it sets this idea of basically um, not just spectating, but also, like you said, simulation and dissimulation. And this reminds me of the conversation that I had with Benny when it kind of when we were talking about the duplicity of the image and how and what that means in um, in the context of Kiarostami's films and also uh, a, a more granular level what that uh, uh, how that translates from or 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 the application from Kiarostami not just as a filmmaker but also as a photographer having having done photography in the background and this is interesting to me because I, I remember starting the film and just thinking like okay duplicity of the image what is that going to mean how am I going to see this um, come to fruition, basically. Um, and it, it, it was great because it, it started from the very beginning, from that very opening shot where um, we have a, a bunch of people in like a restaurant or a club and you hear someone talking and uh, I believe the, the opening line is, uh, I'm not lying, um, setting kind of this, uh, this meta, um, uh, not even expectation, but, but sort of um, meta commentary on basically like, well, we're watching a film, and there's going to be some um, allusion to this. Um, but there's there's multiple levels of action going on in this restaurant, and you know there's there's a couple kind of sitting uh, over by the bar. There's a a woman who is actually very prominent in her actions. How the camera kind of focuses her somewhat in the foreground, who's motioning and and, and kind of speaking, and and there's a bunch of other people kind of middling about, and 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 we're not really sure who is the one that is saying this and at least for me I was kind of thinking like okay I'm pretty sure I know who it is but then I watched the mouth and I'm like no it's not her okay so maybe it's this person and 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 you were just kind of I'm going around the scene just kind of wondering who is the person that's talking right now and it's not until we have that first cut in which we see Akiko sitting at the table talking on her phone um to her boyfriend um that uh, or, or or and then when she hands the phone to 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 a friend to kind of help that friend perpetuate the lie that, that she's telling her boyfriend that she's out and about, where you kind of see like, oh wow, it was none of these people. Um, this scene and and uh, this this 
framing, this blocking, this camera setup, this director kind of set up an expectation and then completely subverted it. Um, and it, it's, it's kind of interesting because it does, um, as Benny said, it kind of like the framing, the image has a duplicity, has a, has a, has a deception to it. We have expectations that we bring to a film specifically based or, or, or specifically kind of, um, ingrained in us because of, 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 Hollywood filmmaking of certain conventions of mainstream American filmmaking. Um, and uh, and uh, Kiarostami was obviously not raised in that environment, so he's bringing different expectations. He's bringing sort of, sort of a different objective to the way that he is choosing to frame and shoot things. Um, and it, it, it does, like I said, it, it kind of sets up this, this, um, this expectation of, of not even if we are going to be lied to but it does kind of set up at least from the very beginning it sets up this expectation of not that I can't trust what I'm going to see but whatever framing Kiarostami chooses um, however he chooses to shoot a certain scene uh, a conversation or anything this opening uh, sequence kind of sets this expectation of not look for something else but there is going to be a reason that I'm choosing to show it to you in this way, basically. Um, it's never as simple, and, and for most directors, it shouldn't be as simple as just, this is going to be the easiest way to shoot it, or this is the conventional way of shooting, although, of course, a lot of times it is just the conventional, quote-unquote, conventional way that they're choosing to film something. Um, but it just kind of sets this expectation that there's going to be a reason that I am shooting this thing this way, and it's not a, it's not a pretentious reason it's not like a a a, a, a um purposely um esoteric art house kind of thing to kind of keep you at arm's length and, and and when the meaning is sort of you know um hidden or individual or or hard to access it's it's just instead it kind of at least for me it sort of not kept me on my toes but it sort of um made me constantly re-engage with the framing and with the film every time there was a cut or every time there was a new scene because I was thinking there's a reason that he's choosing to film it this way because he set that expectation from the very beginning. And it reminded me, too, this idea of of the filmmaker and the viewer as a spectator um, reminded me of the conversation that I had with Tyler when it came to the films of Mike Lee and the idea of, of the, the, the director being objective versus observatory. Um, and we... We tried to talk about, or, or, or he tried to explain how Mike Lee is a very observant filmmaker versus an objective filmmaker. There, there are certainly similarities between the two, but there are differences as well. And while I think I did understand that and eventually kind of realize how that came to fruition in the films of Mike Lee, I'm, I'm watching Kiarostami now, I'm actually kind of thinking that he does it a lot better than Mike Lee does, where it's, it is one thing to be observant of people and kind of non-judgmental of them when they're within the intimate confines of a of a house and um, hard and painful truths about the past are kind of coming up or a real per, a, a person's real character is being revealed it's it's easy to kind of be <laughs> easy says the guy who's never made a movie um, it, it seems like it is easier to be objective in that kind of context when it is just well I'm going to set the camera up and let my actors do their thing and just kind of not move the camera or cut in any way to kind of make it seem like you should be feeling a certain way about a certain person that is on screen now. But I think Kiarostami does it better in the sense of not even that sticking the camera just where he does in the opening scene is sort of like, well, this is how it would really look if you were sitting there. But instead, 
he's creating a context for the world in which our character is living her life, basically. Um, the conversation that she's having with her boyfriend is a very painful one because he's, we can, we, we understand just based on what she's saying that he's very uh, overprotective, that he's very jealous, that he's a, a, a <laughs> straight up a bad person, um, which is uh, accented later when um, Akiko's boss or, or pimp, however you want to look at it, comes and, and is trying to give her some mature, almost fatherly advice that she should break up with him. Um, but we are just kind of sitting there. We are sitting in her world, um, both emotionally and physically, because we're we're hearing the conversation and we're kind of empathizing with her and we're and we're feeling, oh my God, this is this is terrible. And and look at the lengths that she has to go to to try and deceive this person because she just kind of wants to have a night to herself because she wants to have some space from this person. But the but what the camera is shooting, which is not just her, but in fact, it is not her at all at first, but it is the world in which she's sitting in in this restaurant where people are having fun and they're conversing and they're drinking and they're eating puts us in the physical environment where she is too and we are just seeing, we are just observing not just the world in which she's existing on a surface level but also on an emotional level. And then when there is that conversation between her and the pimp, it is a conventional just two-shot, basically shot-reverse shot of the conversation and that's all that we really need because... We know enough about her. We are engaged with her emotions, and we are uh, we 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 understand the world that she exists. So we don't need to have anything fancy um, to kind of manipulate you into thinking or feeling a certain way. We are just observing her living out her life and living out her emotions in the world that she does. And it's really quite evocative, and it really kind of engaged me right away, and and kind of got me invested in her and in what she must be feeling. Um, and and, uh, and and Baumbach has another uh, quote about this that I wanted to share, and this will be the last one uh, that I that I quote from him. But I will, of course, put the this uh, link to this essay on the Facebook page if you want to read it more in detail. So it's really a wonderful essay. It was um, one of the I don't want to say one of the better ones, but in terms of helping me uh, engage with the film and kind of understand it and, and relate to it, this was a great one. So. He says, the figure of filmmaker as spectator takes on a new resonance in the two films made outside of Iran. Kiristami has always been invested in ways of seeing made possible from a position of not knowing where we are or what or whom we are looking at. Making a film in Italy or Japan, an unknown country, in a language he doesn't speak, heightens in a new way the sense of a filmmaker as spectator, which in turn makes the audience more like creators, placed in a similar relationship of discovery as the filmmaker. This experience, we should be clear, should not be confused with familiar themes associated with the, quote, art film, such as alienation or ambiguity for its own sake, but rather it becomes the condition for an emotional connection that otherwise would not have been made possible. It is also related to the profound political dimensions of his film. And that that made a lot of sense to me too in the sense of a lot of times we're, when we're watching a film, we're watching it for the first time and we're engaging with it and we're thinking... What is this filmmaker trying to do? What is this filmmaker trying to convey? And if it's if it's from a, a, a filmmaker who is from a different country and a different culture, we think, let me just sit here and, and kind of engage with this and think or, or, or find out what is important to this person. I, I'm in this world. I'm in this filmmaker's hands, so they, they will do with me what they will. And yet there's another level of it with this one because it's not just a, a, a filmmaker from a different culture, but that filmmaker himself is in a different culture while he's making this film. So you kind of just have to sit and be on board and, and try and put whatever your expectations are to the side because 
you have to discover this world. You have to discover its rules, it, its emotional and, and social rules, and how that's going to play into the narrative that's being told. And yet he is doing the same thing, basically. So, you know, you almost kind of imagine um, uh, sitting on the couch with Kira Stami next to you, except he's got the camera and he's sort of filming things, and you're just kind of thinking, like, well, let's... Let's see what they're doing. Let's see where this interaction goes. Let's see how they are going to interact with each other because you're both exploring these people seemingly or it feels like for the first time. You're both learning to, uh, you know, learning what the these who these characters are, what the rules are for themselves, for their own lives and for the world around them and what the rules are for the world around them as well. It is very, as I said, it's very observant because you just have to take in the world and kind of understand what its rules are so that you can understand better who these characters are and how they are, are engaging within it. Um, and what's interesting about this first scene is not just that it sets the, the tone and the theme for the rest of the film, but it also interestingly sort of introduces the element of an, of an unreliable narrator. Um, and not in the, you know, the, the film noir sense or, or memento in the sense of, you know, we're, we're constantly going to be distrusting this person and I should always be skeptical. And at the end of the day, it's, or at the end of the film, it's going to be, what did I just watch and what does it all mean? Though I can understand if at the end of the film you are saying, what did I just watch and what does it all mean? But not in the sense of, 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 um, distrusting everything the narrator or the character says, but in the sense of accepting and understanding and keeping in mind at all times that they are not fully or entirely the person that they are pretending to be around other people. Um, in the sense of uh, Akiko, when we first meet her, um, she is lying to her boyfriend, and, and rightfully so. He's a he is a bad person. But um, the first the the way that we are introduced to her is through deception because she wants to be where she is. She wants to she wants to be away from the person that she's talking to. Um, when we meet um, the professor, her first uh, you know her 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 mark. I guess if you want to say that um, he is. Um, he is a genuine, he is a caring person, but he is also, uh, to a certain, uh, at a certain point, the film pretends to be someone else, fulfills the role of her grandfather so that he can um, have a leg up or, or sort of have access to, uh, to giving an insight that he wouldn't have permission to necessarily give if he was just some guy or if he was um, the, the, you know, the, oh, by the way, nice to meet you, Kiko's boyfriend. I, I'm, I'm the guy that purchased your daughter or your, uh, your, your girlfriend last night. Um, so he pretends to do that. He, he goes along with that so that he can, um, you know, basically have leverage over someone that he wouldn't in, in any other regard. And then, of course, we have the boyfriend who says that he loves Akiko, that he, he wants to marry her. But also when we when we how we see him act and how he explains it, it it's not because of any selflessness. It's not because he he doesn't want to marry Akiko because of um, how much he cares about her but instead because he wants to control her because he wants to you know well once we're married um you know she won't have any other choice other than to listen to me and and to be controlled by me and you have all these people who are acting in a certain way but actually are a different way um and it's an interesting uh, it's interesting that the title is like someone in love because all these people are um going through certain actions as though they are in love or love someone else. Um, but they're just acting like that. They are not in all actuality like that. I mean, there's some genuine uh, affection you can tell between the professor and Akiko, but he is not, um, 
in love with her. He does not purchase her because he wants to have sex with her. He purchases her, it seems like, because of he wants companionship. But also, it seems to be he is kind of fulfilling and living out um, some uh, something vicariously because we, we do kind of get the impression that uh, Akiko looks a lot like his wife did when she was younger or maybe even resembles his daughter. So it's this idea of he still wants to have companionship with her specifically to kind of fulfill a different kind of yearning that he has. Um, she fills that role. So he is, um, and also he's just, he's not actually her grandfather, but he is pretending to be that, uh, that role. Um, Akiko is, um, you know, uh, you know, trying to be a student, trying to be, um, not a prostitute and yes, has to fulfill those, that role, uh, as, 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 as a, as a job. Um, and we have the boyfriend who is, um, playing the role of a boyfriend but it's it's hollow or it's at least on uh, it's a different kind of relationship because of how selfish he is because of how angry he is because of how he is in it only for himself so you have all these people who are um acting the part of someone else when 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 really we we know who they really kind of are um and 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 i will and, and it's interesting to me how um getting back to, to that, that first scene of how um, what we see and what we hear are not contradictory to each other, but they're, but what we hear is adding something supplemental to what we see um, that we wouldn't necessarily see if we were just watching it. If you turn the subtitles off or you turn the audio off and you were just watching the film just strictly visually, you'd get something else entirely from the viewing experience. Now, of course... I, I let's put aside the the idea that um you know you can't that in a film you can't really f- separate especially in a fiction film you can't really separate the audio from the visual those two are, are sort of like you know the you know the the nougat and the caramel in, in a milky way if you will um they both uh, um contribute to the enjoyment of the product but what i mean in this specific instance is that i think there'd be an entirely different emotional resonance um, an understanding of the characters if we didn't if we didn't have the audio the 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 language basically kind of supplementing and adding something different to the visuals um you know later on shortly after that after that uh, opening um scene we also then have kind of uh, the same angle but with the camera pushed a little bit further back because we have the pimp outside on the phone um having a conversation and the camera is actually outside the window now, but kind of still looking down uh, into the restaurant in the same angle. But it adds this element too of um, not just the reflection of the of the the pimp in the window, but also we can see the back of Akiko's head, and so it adds something new. Especially when it comes to the conversation that he's having is basically about her life and what her evening is going to look like. Um, there is um, information being conveyed about her that she is not privy to, but we are. Or, phenomenally, that scene uh, and that shot when Kiko is in the ta- uh, Kiko is in the taxi going to the professor's house later on, but she's listening instead to the voicemails that her grandmother is leaving her, and it's just this series of <laughs> it's so upsetting. It's a series of voicemails that her grandmother is leaving her as she is taking the train to Tokyo, having arrived in Tokyo, waiting for Akiko to show up in Tokyo, um, 
there's there's a couple of uh, not spam but sort of obligatory kind of bill collector uh, uh, of voicemails and then her grandmother's coming back I'm you know I'm, I'm at this noodle shop I'll wait for you or if not I'll go back to the train station then later on like I'm waiting at the train station if you want to come and see me it'd be wonderful to see you and it's there's this emotional journey that we're going on there and there's almost sort of this narrative arc in the journey of the grandmother's day in Tokyo itself being played out in these voicemail messages when the shot that we're seeing is just, <clears throat> excuse me, Akiko in the back seat of the car looking out the window at the hustle and bustle of Tokyo that is going by as she's in this taxi, just kind of being very ambivalent about this experience. And it's sort of like the, uh, the in a way, it's almost sort of the, the Kuleshov effect where we're sort of looking at her as these voicemails are playing out and just kind of thinking like, okay, she's she doesn't care or she's remorseful or she really wants to go see her and maybe she, she'll ask the taxi driver to pull over, but she doesn't. And, and it's, this, it's this entire journey that we're going on through her feelings, through her relationship with this person when all we're seeing is just her in the backseat of a car. And if you take that audio away, if you take that story away, it's just kind of this um, ambivalent, almost sort of ambiguous and apathetic almost um, shot of just this this woman sitting in the backseat of a car just kind of letting life pass her by. Which, yes, there is an element of that, but also there is an emotional grappling and there's an emotional engagement going on that we only are able to see uh, because of what we're hearing. And it is that wonderful... Uh, and he does this throughout the film. It's it's really wonderful how um, what we're <clears throat> what we're hearing hearing is supplementing what we're seeing, um, even if what we're seeing is n- not um, the source of the language. Um, there's a lot of times when when there are conversations going on where uh, it is once again a conventional shot reverse shot, and yet we linger on a person to see their reactions or. We hear a conversation being engaged with, but the the question being asked, we're we're not looking at the person who is asking the question. Um, I'm thinking specifically of the conversation between Akiko's boyfriend and the professor in the car when he drops her off for the exam. And we get to see a lot of time of of their reactions to each other, of their kind of trying to feel each other out and and wonder who this person is and what their relationship is. And it's not so much... um, what is this person asking? But it's more that the intent is, or, or the focus is, instead of what is what is this person learning about the other person instead. Um, and even when um, uh, when 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 Akiko and the professor first meet, and she heads into the bedroom, and she we see her kind of uh, we see her clothes being thrown on the ground, so we understand, or we think we understand at least, that she is preparing for sex. And yet, Kiristami subverts that expectation, where really she just wants to go to bed, and the professor wants to have dinner with her and yet their entire conversation once he goes into the room is is framed by just him sitting on the chair and we only see her through the through the hazy reflection of the TV which has been turned off um and so we only kind of focus on him and so the focus is not on sex the focus is not even on the conversation between the two but the focus is instead on what are we learning about the professor in this instant? We had uh, a lot of learning about Akiko in that opening sequence in the, in the taxi ride, but now we're now that we're here in the professor's apartment, what are we learning about him? What are we learning about what he wants? What are we learning about his emotional response to this scene? And it's all just done by 
focusing on him as this entire conversation between two people does play out, and it's really quite fascinating. And I do have to admit that, um, obviously, uh, viewing a movie is a, is a subjective experience, and I've talked numerous times on this podcast about what people bring to a viewing experience, uh, to a, a filmmaker, to a film specifically, and how that shapes their understanding. So I do have to confess that my resonance with this film and my response to it is quite heavily shaped by other art that I've been recently engaging with. Specifically at the time of this um, watching and recording, I have been reading um, Neil Postman's um, Amusing Ourselves to Death, Public Discourse in the Age of Show Business. It was actually um, a book that came out in the 80s during the, the Reagan presidency, but it, it's it's talking basically about how, well, it, it's it's... If I explain it now, it's too simplistic to, to dilute the, the entire book into one thesis, but it's basically talking about how um, the change in media has become a, a, a metaphor and, and how, um, well, there's these different um, eras and ages of communication from, you know, um, oral communication to print communication to um, now television communication and how that has been changing the way that we interpret and engage with um, facts, basically. Um, and in... In the book, he is a uh, in this specific section. He is um, quoting a writer named Gabriel uh, Gabriel Salomon, um, in which he says, "Pictures need to be recognized. Words need to be understood." By this, he means that the photograph presents the world as object, language the world as idea, and it's just um, it's it's part of this um, it's part of this chapter in which he's just kind of basically talking about how. Language and um, visuals are conveying, as he says, two different types of communication, how we pick up two different types of things and how um, specifically when it comes to uh, a civilization in which we got most of our information through print news media, how that is drastically different from a day and age now in which we are getting most of our news and information from um, television, from 30-second spots, from advertising, from all this sort of thing. And it is, <laughs> I'll admit it is quite a, a cynical book, um, a little bit too cynical uh, for my taste at some uh, in some parts. But there is some validity there, not just in the sense of, of kind of uh, deconstructing, analyzing how information is conveyed, but also specifically the idea of um, how visuals and um, audio add two different layers of things or, or how they are conveying two different things to you about the world. And I feel like on a, a on a subconscious level, Kiarostami understands that. We see it from that opening shot of the film, basically, um, and how uh, he's going to show us one thing um, and then he's going to also tell us something else about that thing through the dialogue. Um, so we get this an emotional engagement with the world, but we also get the, an understanding in the context of the world through how he uses the camera, through how uh, or what he writes for his actors, and then how he chooses to combine those two things adds this um, two layers of meaning to things, um, which really kind of uh, makes a, a film which on a surface level can seem rather simple to actually be quite uh, complex and fascinating. And I, I will say that uh, if I did have one complaint with the film, it was sort of the ending. Um, I, I should say I don't have a problem with abrupt endings at all, but the abruptness of this one, at least where they choose, where he chooses to end it, was a bit confusing to me. Um, maybe I, I should not necessarily be expecting resolution from a filmmaker that I, I'm engaging with for the first time and, and sort of bringing 
my expectations to his art form based on my preconceived notions. Um, but where he chooses to end it is a bit strange to me in the sense of um, nothing does seem to be resolved. Like, like it just seems like where he's abandoning the film at the spot that he's choosing to end it. It's a little bit frustrating for me, and, and, and I just kind of, and I actually had to rewind it a couple times because I kept, mi- or I thought I kept missing something because I knew that the rock, you know, or something was thrown through the window and the professor fell to the ground, but I kept rewinding it, seeing like, am I missing something? Was he hit in the head, or, or are we supposed to believe that this is the end of the professor? Did it kill him? But it seems like it just startled him. It just seems like, you know, this something is thrown through the window, it smashes the window, the professor startled and he falls to the ground, and that's sort of it. And just trying to play out, you know, if I if I in, extended the scene in my mind another five or ten minutes, it's sort of like, okay, what comes next after this? And I know that um, screenwriter uh, John August has said that, you know, you, you end a film in one of two places. You either end at, at, at uh, the story at its natural conclusion, where it can't go any further, logically, or you end a film at where... Um, at the point where if we were to continue the story, it would just start repeating itself now. And... I thought maybe that's the case here, but I don't know. It, it, it's it's a very uh, mainstream way of kind of um, of applying my thinking and engagement to a, a film that um, should not be engaged with as a mainstream film, basically. And I know uh, Baumbach specifically uh, mentions the ending two in his essay at, at the very end. I don't recall what he says about it right now, but I remember finding um, that his explanation was uh, a little bit not satisfying for me as well. But once again, I will post it on the Facebook page so that you can read it and decide for yourself. So um, if you want to uh, uh, re-engage with this film yourself, it's available for rental or purchase on Amazon, uh, YouTube, Google, uh, and iTunes, and the Microsoft Store as well. But um, that does it for this episode on Like Someone in Love. I, of course, am always curious to hear what you think um, about this film, about this filmmaker, about this podcast. It's easy enough to do that, but if you want to email me at youdomoviesbadly at gmail.com, uh, tweet at me at Nolan Fixes Teeth on Twitter, um, catch up on back episodes of I Do Movies Badly at Battleship Retention, or on idomoviesbadly.podbean.com, though I would encourage you to go to the Battleship Retention one because that way you can engage um, in the comment fields on individual episodes. So, um, thanks for listening. That does it for this one. Be sure to tune in next week where I'll be covering Abbas Kiristami's um, other film shot outside of Iran, um, Certified Copy, and where hopefully I will be just a little bit less ignorant. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.